Thank you very much, Martin. We'll do keep that reading open as we look at that this morning together. Um, and just before we uh, turn to that, to the sermon and, and pray about that, um, just a couple of other mentions by way of news. One is that at the end of the service there's going to be a fire practice for the children in the hall, not for all of us, but for the children. So if the alarm goes off here, it could well be for real. Um, that just means that the, this morning the leaders will bring the children over at the end of the rehearsal, the fire practice, to be collected at the back of church here, just outside the doors there, or if it's very cold and we haven't finished, they'll come inside. But the plan is to collect them from the, the side door, by the side corridor there, the little ramp to the all right as you go through the doors. The other piece, a little bit of sad news this morning. We just heard this morning that John Balls' wife, Sylvia, died this morning. Um, and those that know John, uh, very much a long-standing, very committed member of Holy Trinity, um, will know that he's been caring for Sylvia for, for some time now. Um, but do keep John in your prayers uh, today and in these coming days as well. Well, let's pray together now as we turn to read God's word and to open it up together. Father, thank you for your word. As we think of John this morning and pray for him, we pray that we all may be strong in faith. And We thank you for the good news of Jesus and the faith you've given in him, the love for each other and the hope you give us in Christ and his resurrection. Uh, Open our eyes afresh to the life that you call us to in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the question of right and wrong um, is being, I think, quite widely debated in our culture at the moment. Just a few examples. Um, The shocking mistreatment of women by men in power in the film and fashion industries has been in the news the last few weeks. A lot of discussion, a lot of debate, this hashtag MeToo movement by women um, saying that they have also suffered some kind of abuse at the hands of men in their workplace. President Trump, um, speaking of right and wrong, um, to his followers... His comments in social media, whether it's about um, immigrants or Muslims or other politicians, uh, seem to be correct and overdue. Um, To many people, however, they seem to be deluded or even dangerous comments that he's making. Um, Is that right or wrong what he's doing? There's a debate going on in universities at the moment um, about faith in the the kind of public arena um, and about the right to publicly debate things like faith There's also a debate about Marxism, whether Stalin was really such a wicked person as history has portrayed him. The argument apparently from the Marxists is that the good that Stalin did in helping to industrialize the Soviet Union balances the, well, thousands, millions of lives that suffered under him, um, partly in building that industry. How do we know what's right and wrong? It was over a century ago that Dostoevsky, one of his novels, uh, used the phrase, God is dead, uh, because of the kind of movement of atheism that was growing then. God is dead and therefore everything is now permissible. In other words, there is now no right and wrong. If God doesn't exist, there's no arbiter, no authority to tell us right and wrong. Uh, The logic, I think, is, is fairly hard to argue with. He's really expressing the idea of a philosopher called Nietzsche, who wrote a book about power, where he argued that the idea of right and wrong, morality, is simply something that people in power use to control people, or it's the desire for power 
that makes us tell people that there are right and wrong ways to behave. So again, everything's permissible if you're really honest about it. Um, about 40 years ago, a book was written about sin, which I think, again, rightly argued that sin was being redefined. It was defined morally as right and wrong in olden times. Then it became defined um, legally as a crime. And then 40 years ago, it's been defined as a sickness. So a kind of a, a psychological definition of sin. It's just a weakness, a sickness. I think we've moved even further, haven't we, now, where sin no longer exists at all. Um, the only kind of definition of right and wrong now is, um, does it feel right to you? Do you feel that you're, you're wired that way? Just do what feels right, in other words. Well, the Christian message, despite all of that, still is a call to right living, or in the title of our series, living to please God. There is someone to whom we're accountable, someone for whom we live. There is right and wrong, and Paul writes this letter both to affirm the faith and love, the lifestyle of the Christians he writes it to, and to urge them and us to more of the same, to keep pursuing right living, living to please God. We saw last time that he visited Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece, about 50 AD. He preached the good news of Jesus there, and a number responded and formed a church, the ones that received this letter later. But others in the city there resented this Christian movement, and they opposed them, they persecuted them, they drove Paul out, and the only way he could contact them to keep in touch and encourage them was to write this and the following letter to them, Thessalonians. The letter celebrates that their faith is genuine, their, their hope and their love are genuine, and it urges them on to more. And in the passage today, chapter 2, 1 to 16, there are effectively two sections, two headings, if you like, for this passage. Um, the Bible translation we have in our seats, um, the NIV from about 30 years ago, breaks it into... Um, four paragraphs, there aren't really so much four as really two sections as I've said here and modern, some other modern translations do it differently, verses 1 to 12 is really the first section, 1 to 12, the longer one and that's all about a life that pleases God and then verses 13 to 17 he turns to a church that pleases God, a life that pleases God a church that pleases God in the first section 1 to 12, the longer one he unpacks there a number of ways his life as an example of pleasing God. Um, three times, you see it in verse 1, then verse 3, and then verse 6. He starts by saying, you know that we were not something. Then he goes on to say, but we were something else. We were not something um, negative, selfish or greedy or whatever, but we were something else. We were loving, we were gentle, and so on. So that kind of, we were not, but we were. That's the pattern here. Um, and that really breaks this longer section into those three subheadings, which I'm going to use this morning. Um, three ways um, that his life and his call to us for our lives um, should please God. Now, it could sound a bit defensive, this kind of, I wasn't this, but I was that with you. You know, I, I wasn't a crook, but I was genuine. Um, 
And some people think, well, that's because there were people in the church that were criticizing Paul and he's defending himself, or people in Thessalonica outside the church that were criticizing the apostle and he's defending himself. But actually, more likely, and a lot of the experts say this, he is simply setting his life here as an example to us to follow. This is what a life that pleases God looks like, he's saying. He's not boasting. He's just saying, I follow Jesus, and my life looks like this, and I'd love yours to be the same. And that's the sense this morning. If you want a life that pleases God, this is how to do it. And here's the first heading. Verse 1 and verse 2. A life that pleases God is not empty, but is full of conviction. Now, there was a big industry in Paul's day, as today, of, of traveling speakers, um, people who could hire in to lecture for you, often things like philosophy and ideas and living. Um, so now, I guess now you'd probably get who, like you know, Tony Blair or someone, and you'd pay him a lot of money to come and speak for 15 minutes at your after-dinner event. Or, I don't know, perhaps not, I don't know, Tony Blair, I don't know, someone else. Uh, and a question in those days, as today, was, you know, are they easy to listen to? Are they winsome? Are they um, attractive speakers? And Paul says, um, Christian life comes not from a kind of an empty, con- an empty message with no content um, that's just nicely delivered, but from speaking with full conviction. That word, in our translation here, our visit to you was not a failure. It's literally, it, it wasn't empty. And it could mean empty of content, um, or it could mean empty of results. You know, we spoke to you, but no one became a Christian. Now, we know that wasn't the case, don't we? A number did believe. Um, and, and how he goes on, he speaks not about the result of their ministry, but the, the manner of it, the character. So almost certainly, it's, it's the first sense. Empty of content. Or conviction, he said in the previous passage, our gospel came to you with power and deep conviction. So he's saying, isn't he, if you want to live a Christian life, um, be like me. When I came to you, you know I spoke with conviction. I believed in this. I, I brought you a gospel that means something to me, not just empty words. Now, he does say, we did this in spite, verse 2, of strong opposition. We told you the gospel, um, literally again, it's, we boldly, we dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. And as we heard, he was kicked out of Philippi, where he was before, unfairly treated it there, and he came to Thessalonica on the back of that, and he says, rather than putting me off gospel work... Rather than saying, oh, you know, just soft pedal this Christianity thing, make it easier for yourself at work, Paul, he says, no, we still spoke to you even more so boldly about Jesus. It's a reminder, isn't it, that although it's not always easy, is it, to talk about Jesus at work, uh, to give someone a gospel to read perhaps feels like a, a, a risky thing to do. We face sometimes, you know, rejection or mockery for it. The Christian life is not easy. It's never always easy for long. And Paul says, that's the sign. It's full conviction. That's the sign of an authentic Christian life that pleases God. So that's the first little kind of dual thing. That it's not about um, an empty message, but full conviction. Secondly, um, or B, under this first heading, it's not about pleasing man, but God. See what he says there in 
verse 3. Traveling speakers, again, were, were known for using whatever tricks they could. Um, expansive oratory and rhetoric. Or cunning, attractive-sounding messages, you know, sugared with lots of lovely good news in order to persuade people to listen to them and support them financially. That was the bottom line. Um, Pay me for this this stuff I'm giving you. Well, Paul's contrast is there in verse 3. The appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. See there, he's, he's saying, I'm bringing you not just a lecture, which is interesting, but an appeal which is life-changing. That's the, the moral content, again, of the gospel, isn't it? From the beginning, the news about Jesus implies a change of life to please God. But look how he kind of knocks all those um, cultural expectations of speakers on the head here. Not from error, he says. You can't fault the reasoning I gave you. It was honest and straightforward and historical about Jesus. Um, Not impure. My motives weren't impure. I wasn't selfish. I wasn't lazy. I wasn't greedy. I wasn't lustful with you. And he says, you couldn't accuse me of being a trickster, conning people into believing something and then kind of getting something from you afterwards. Straightforward. Now, in our day, we're we're used to public speakers and, and, and... Politicians, for instance, are not quite being sure often if they mean what they say or if we can trust what they say. That is, you know, sadly, that is our culture, isn't it, today? Um, a real lack of trust, and it's partly been earned, hasn't it, really, um, in public figures. If you're around in those days, do you remember President Clinton, as he was then, um, when he was being impeached for um, lying and being a womanizer? And in one speech he gave at the time... He laughed it all off when he, was, he came in at number 53 in the world's top 50 news stories by saying, well, what have we got to do to make the top 50? And that's the kind of culture we live in, isn't it, where it's all about, the, the, can I hit the headlines? Not am I doing right as opposed to wrong. And There are churches today that are teaching the gospel or um, are, are watering down the gospel in order to make it more compelling or to say to you if, you, if you follow us and join our church, you've got to do what we say in all these areas, including giving us all your money. And Paul is saying, that's not real Christian lifestyle. That doesn't please God. Um, pleasing God matters, not pleasing men. We're not about crowd-pleasing, but God-pleasing. So it says in um, verse 4, we, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts, and we never use flattery or masks to cover up greed. Paul's saying, isn't he, I was converted, Damascus Road experience, I was then commissioned by God, and then he trusted me with the most precious thing, the gold of the gospel because he knows my heart, that I'm not out to please crowds, but just to please my master. I'm serving him. So that's our first two um, kind of subheadings here. How to live a life to please God. Be fully convicted in how you live and share it with others and aim to be pleasing to God. And don't worry about what others think. Then here's the last one. Um, Point C here. 
Paul says from verse 6, he's not seeking glory, but he's encouraging godliness. Paul is an apostle. Um, He was one of those special leaders set apart in the early days of the church under Jesus to transmit the authentic news about Jesus. He could, with that status, have come into Thessalonica saying, I'm one of these, these, these very important Christian messengers. I've been sent from Jerusalem by the first followers of Jesus with the good news about him. I expect you to give me a room at the best hotel and put me up and treat me with luxury and honor me as an important person. But he didn't. He says in, in verse 6, um, we came to you, uh, uh, when I came to you as an apostle, we could have been a burden to you. But, he says, we were not looking for praise from people, from you or anyone else, even though as apostles we carried that weight. Instead, we were like young children with you. Um, or, translation I think says, gentle Get the idea of a, a fragile baby that has no power over you, does it? All the power is in our hands as, as the one holding the child. We were gentle like that with you. And then he says, we were like a nursing mother who cares for her children, so we cared for you. Goes on in the, the next little section to remind them that in his short time with them, He didn't look for financial support for them. That was always his pattern. When he brought the gospel to a town, he would offer it freely. Because, rather like the NHS, Paul knows the gospel is free at the point of delivery, of need. Now, he did ask for support later when he moved on to the next place in order to share the gospel with them. But he says, I came and the gospel's free to you. I ask nothing from you. And he says, I treated you like a mother with her children. You know, if, if, uh, this is the great thing about being a vicar. You get, you get to meet lots of children. People bring them through the door to church, and you get to, to once see wonderful little newborn, and you can pick the little one up and say, what, what's his name? How old is he? And isn't he gorgeous? And pass him back afterwards. But as a parent, it's very different, isn't it? When that child is crying, they're yours. You need to care for them and nurture them and meet their needs. And you give and give and give, don't you, as a parent? Because this is your child. Paul's saying, that's how I was with you. I didn't just say, well, I'm just like a tutor. I'm just here to teach you this stuff and I'll hand you back at the end of the day and take my money. No, I was like a mother nursing a child. It's a very powerful picture, isn't it? And that's what he says is, is authentic Christian life that pleases God. Encouraging godliness by nurturing those around us. Then he says where the father's role in the culture then was to train a child in how they should live, particularly in this area of right and wrong. He says, I took that role, we took that role with you. We were spiritual fathers to you. Um, We dealt with you, he says, with each of you. This is individual work, isn't it? As a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and the, the words kind of get stronger and stronger, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Encouraging godliness, not seeking his own glory. That's what he's doing, isn't it? Encouraging, urging them to live lives that please God as he is seeking to do himself. So how do we live today? Just to kind of bring those three ideas together. Um, It's it's about full commitment, full conviction. 
It's about pleasing God, not man, and it's about urging, encouraging each other towards godliness. How do we do that today as a church, as Christians? Well, here's one question. Who was the faithful person that first helped you to find Jesus? Who shared the message with you? What sort of life did they live beside you? Now, I suspect they didn't just do that, they didn't just share the gospel with words, but they lived their life with you, didn't they? They shared themselves with you. I suspect their manner with you was not domineering, you've got to believe this or else, but was gentle, like Paul's was. I suspect that you knew, didn't you, that they loved you, and their only desire was that you should find God and know how to live for him. Well, why not give thanks to God today for that person? For the way God used their life as well as their words, to bring you to Christ. And maybe even if you don't see them day to day, why not write them a letter this week and just say, um, I want to thank you for being that kind of person to me. And of course, obviously, the implication is, well, who could we be like that to today ourselves? Who could I share my life with? And as a parent here today, uh, if you have children around, God's given us our children as our primary teaching and training responsibility, hasn't he? In the church and outside the church. To nurture as a mother, to train as a father, to encourage them towards godliness, to live a life of full conviction that they can see what the gospel means to us and not just hear it from our lips. But actually it's true for all of us. As we said earlier, one of our things in this church is to be encouragers to each other in the pews where we are over coffee at the end, be having that conversation with someone at your small group this week. How are you following Jesus? How's your Bible reading at the moment? How are you living out the faith at work? Is it difficult? What are the difficult things about following Jesus for you this week? How do I pray for that? Encouraging godliness, urging each other to live lives worthy of God. So that's our first point. That's the longer one, the main one this morning. How to live a life that pleases God. That's what a life that pleases God looks like. It's it's committed, it's conviction, it's full of that. It's pleasing God and not worrying about the crowds. And it's seeking not glory, but encouraging godliness in others. Here's the second um, and shorter main point this morning from verse 13. If that's what a gospel-shaped life looks like, what's a gospel-shaped church look like? Well, a church that pleases God... Paul says, is not opposing the gospel, but supporting its spread. So he says in verse 13, if you're back with me in the passage, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. See, many heard the Christian message then and still do today and just kind of dismissed it like a myth. It's just made up, it's just a fairy story and so on. They didn't do that. In fact, Paul goes as far as to say that the apostles' words to them, Paul's words to them, were the words of God. Isn't that striking? It's always what the Bible says about its own words. The words of God through Paul. Not just Paul speaking, but God speaking, as he spoke of Jesus, of his death for us, of his resurrection, of his one-day return. The words of God. 
Now, where they received the gospel warmly, not everyone did. There were others, as we've seen, in the city where they were, who did not like the fact that they'd become Christians and a church had started and began to persecute them. And they drove Paul out, as we've seen. And then Paul says in verse 14, um, what then happened demonstrated that you're a church that pleases God, he says. Verse 14, for you became imitators of God's churches in Judea. Uh, You suffered from your own countrymen, that's the, the Thessalonians, the same things those churches, that's the young Jewish churches in Judea, suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, the apostles. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. See the gist there? It's really verse 16. God's purpose is that the good news of Jesus should be spread, should be told to everyone. And Paul recognizes that the attempt to obstruct that gospel is a common pattern. It's behind all opposition, whether it's faced by Paul or by the Thessalonians now, by us today indeed, or by the Lord Jesus himself. It's the desire to obstruct the gospel so that God's good news can't spread. And Paul says, it's quite strong language, isn't it, that God will, does and will judge that willful obstruction wherever it comes from. But the point is that a gospel-shaped church will support the spread of the message instead of obstructing it. Because we know this is good news and the world needs to hear it. Reminds me of a time in our last church when we were prayerfully looking to plant a new church in a school which lay in another church's patch. And uh, with the bishop, we had a meeting with the leaders of that church at which one of their leaders uh, once we'd shared the vision with them began to say that she had reservations. Their tradition was rather different from ours. And she felt that what we wanted to do in that school building would steal people from their church. So we listened and we arranged to pray and to meet a week later to discuss it further. And we went away and we prayed very hard that week. And we came together in some trepidation a week later and she announced straight off that she had prayed about this and it had become clear to her during that week that we were a complement to what their church was already doing, not in conflict with them, and that we could reach a whole new estate that was being built in that area around the school that they couldn't reach and therefore she welcomed the initiative. It wasn't a wonderful answer to prayer. And that church plant is still thriving 10 years later. Uh, and that's, that's because living to please God is about supporting the gospel as churches, not obstructing it. And she, she'd got that. And it could be that at work, you know, again, perhaps in universities at the moment especially, or in the church here at points in the future, who knows, there'll be moments when people want to obstruct the gospel being spread. And our calling as Christians then is to be prepared to speak and to stand up and whatever happens to keep on spreading the gospel, even if it's obstructed by some. And just personally this week, um, whether or not obstructed, 
Just a reminder, why not have a copy of a gospel with you in your handbag, in your, in your bag at work, because you never know who you might be able to give a gospel to this week, because we're here to spread it and not to obstruct it. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're hearing the good news of Jesus almost for the first time, and you are intrigued at why could this message be such an important thing that it calls us to a whole new life, to please God, and it calls the church to spread it wherever we can. Well, if you want to find out more, as I mentioned, come to the Discover group, uh, which starts in a couple of weeks' time. But why not also just take a copy of the Gospel this morning? I've got some free ones here you could take. Just come and ask me for one, and go and read it for yourself and find this Jesus who Paul lived to love and serve, and we live to love and serve today. So as we uh, finish now, we are living, aren't we, in a world that is deeply confused about how to live. Where do we get the guidelines for today on how to do right instead of wrong, if such a thing even exists? Well, we've seen this morning, haven't we? What a privilege we have in Christ that God has given us all the help we need. He's empowered us with his spirit. He's given us his word. And he's given us the example of people like Paul and other Christians around us, of lives that are full of conviction, live to please God, encouraging us towards godliness and calling us to begin doing the same for others. Let's ask God now to help us this week to talk about Jesus and to walk following him. Let's pray together. Lord, we confessed earlier in our service how easily, quickly, and often we slip and fall away from lives that please you. Uh, We confess we also sometimes blur the boundaries of what living to please you looks like. We even rename sin sometimes. But as we ask and gratefully accept your forgiveness, we do ask you now that by your spirit in us as your church, by the power of the gospel at work in conviction in us, you will move us and equip us to live lives that please you this week. And may the message of Jesus reach others through us this week and in coming weeks, not only because of the words we share, but the lives that we live to your glory Amen.